Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we return to the book of Exodus as we look at chapters 19 through 23. During this sermon, we learn three things about the scene at Mount Sinai, about the giving and the purpose of the law, and about the parts of the law. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, God Gives the Law. Exodus 20 will get us uh, started here. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God, Exodus chapter 20, and for just a moment, just consider what is about to happen. Words of God spoken from the mountain 3,500 years ago, eternal words of truth. We are about to read, we are about to meet with the living God in his word. Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. You can stop there. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign God, we worship you as the king who reigns and rules over all. And God, there are parts of your word that show that in might and in glory. And Lord, this is one of those. And I pray, God, I pray, God, that in the same way you brought about a, a, a right and good worshipful fear in the hearts of your people, Lord, on the day that you spoke these words, God, I pray that you do it here. God, hallow your name. Glorify your name. Cause us to see you and see truths about who you are, your character, your will that we have never known, never seen before, oh God, and bring us to bow to you in worship. 
Father, I want to ask your protection on this time. I, I, I ask God as spiritual warfare is just so evident and Lord, Satan wants to distract us and get our minds thinking about anything else other than this or make us prideful and stiff-necked and stubborn. Please God, I, I just pray, come now and prepare us, Lord, for your truth. Till the soil, humble us, Cause us to be a people who are captivated. Lord, our attention captivated, our hearts captivated by you and what you've revealed. And God, make this a time of you at work transforming lives. I pray, God, someone is saved and turns to Christ in the service. I pray that all of your people, all of your sons and daughters who have already turned to Christ for salvation, Lord, that we will all be pierced by your word and, and drawn to you, O oh God. We love you and we ask these things for your glory. And we pray them through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, in the book, Pilgrim's Progress, um, yes, you've heard that mentioned quite a few times in here. Highly encourage you to read it. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory uh, about the journey of the Christian life. And in it, you follow the main story, the main character, Christian, who comes who comes to learn about the gospel in a process of learning truth, uh, comes to salvation and then journeys the path of sanctification. And you've got all these biblical truths coming out of there. Well, in the process of his journey, one day he comes to a mountain and he learns that if he were able to climb this mountain, then he could be right with God. He would have righteousness if he could ascend it. And so he walks up to the mountain and he comes to learn the mountain is called Mount Sinai. And he looks up the mountain and it is a terrifying picture. There is thunder and lightning and crashing. And he, and he mentions that not only that, but the closer you got to the mountain, the more it seemed that the mountain wanted to fall on you. And he began to look for a way to climb and he saw this is an unclimbable mountain. I cannot reach the heights of this. And he comes to learn, yes, in fact, if that mountain could be climbed, there would be righteousness, but no man can climb the mountain. But God has made salvation available in another way. Through a gate you enter, through the name of Jesus Christ. In our journey through the history of God's work in this world, God's plan of redemption that he has been and continues to bring about in this world. We have seen him choose and make a special people. We have seen him allow those special people to endure suffering for their good and, and for the glory of his plan. We've watched him redeem those people out of slavery, bring them into the wilderness, uh, provide for them in supernatural ways. We have seen him make covenant promises to them, but God is nowhere close to being done with them. God is in the process of making this people into a nation. See, see they've already been made into a people, but he is bringing them into a land. He's bringing them into a, a situation. We know he is ultimately making them into a, a kingdom. That is God's purposes. A kingdom where he is the king and he rules over his people in blessing and in grace that is there. You and I in the new covenant with New Testament scriptures, you and I know that the fulfillment of that covenant, of that kingdom 
will not be brought about until the return of Jesus Christ. But in the process of revealing all of those things, in the process of his plan of redemption, God is taking this people, the, the, the children of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, and making them into a nation. And as this nation, the nation of the holy God, they will need a holy law. Today we see another major step in this process of God's plan of redemption. God gives the people his law. We've seen a number of covenants Today we see another covenant enacted with the people. And from this moment in Exodus 19, God is going to spend the next 1,600 years, 1,600-ish years teaching lessons, teaching truths for them and for us, preaching truth that shows that while law is necessary, law is not enough. Law is necessary But law cannot save. God gives his people the law. And we're going to go go about this this morning in in three parts. If you're taking notes there, part one will be the scene at Mount Sinai. We'll talk about that for a moment. Secondly, we're then going to move into the giving of the law. We'll talk about the purposes of the law. And then thirdly, we'll spend some time talking about the parts of the law of the law. So this is, this is a big, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground, a lot of theology, a lot of big picture kind of stuff that helps you even as you come into the New Testament there. So first of all, let's talk about the scene here at Mount Sinai. In chapter 19, God brings Israel to the mountain that God promised to bring Moses back to. This is the same place where the burning bush took place. And God made the promise, I will bring you back here to this spot. He, he brings the people back to Mount Sinai. And there's a lot that happens here. We could spend a lot of time just in the pictures and themes that are here, but we got to be brief. But here's, in essence, what happens. God gives the people three days to prepare to meet with the living God, Yahweh. God has been present with his people, but God is about to show up in a way that they've never seen before. For instance, in the same way that you and I know as, as believers in Jesus Christ, God is active in your life. God is present. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. But you also know it's another thing to see the glory of God like Paul got to see, like John got to see. God is about to come and meet with his people in a greater fullness than what they've ever experienced yet. And if you notice the language that God uses, God is deathly solemn about the language that he uses to speak of this. It it is no light and trifling thing to meet with the living God. Guys, that's why we approach worship in a particular way that we do here, and we don't treat this like a circus, okay? There There is a right way to meet with the living God. God explains things like, if the people try to gaze up and try to see my face, I will break forth against them. That's a theme that comes up several times in that passage. The breaking forth that would happen if you you touch the mountain, if if you try to gaze up and see my face. Man in our sin cannot look on the holiness of God. And so on the third day, 
God came down from heaven and stood there on the mountain. The imagery is nothing short of terrifying. The mountain is on fire. The mountain is trembling. Smoke is billowing up. There is thunder. There's lightning. Did you catch the part about a trumpet sounding from heaven? The people are scared that all this is going on and they're, they're, they're drawing near to this majestic, terrifying sight. But then something happens that is even more terrifying than everything else that has happened up to that point. God speaks. The sound of his voice is so terrifying. The people beg Moses to make it stop. Moses, Moses, Moses you talk to us. You hear God's words and then you come and speak. If we keep hearing God's voice, we're going to die. Have you ever been so afraid that just the anxiety and, and what it is doing to your heart made you think you would die from the fear? For the first time, Israel is getting a real sense of the greatness of Yahweh. God says, I am doing this so the people will know who I am. Track this, friends. God is hallowing his name. God is displaying another part, another side of his glory. And guys, this is who God has eternally been. This is who he is today. And this is who he will be for all of eternity. The same passage in Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, by the way, the same passage in Hebrews that says our God is a consuming fire, the same passage says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's be the generation that eliminates this very unbiblical and quite frankly very ignorant idea that God is different in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. The God of Mount Sinai is the God we worship this morning. He has not changed. This is not all of who he is. God is revealing a part of him, a part of his character, a part of his glory. And while God is the same forever, there is an intentional difference that the Bible spends a lot of time making. But the difference is not in the character of God changing. The difference is the amount of grace that is available to us in the new covenant. But this is the key phrase you got to latch on to. That is because of the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is so powerful. It cleanses us so thoroughly. We relate to God in a way that is greater than the old covenant. There is a greater grace that is a available. God hasn't changed, but God gave this covenant and even gives some imagery to go to this covenant. But friends, all through the Old Testament, God spent time saying, but one day I'm going to make a new covenant and it will have greater grace. That there will be a, a greater deliverance, a greater salvation that is there in it. And there's a lot of time spent to show us this. This covenant that we're about to see established in, in chapter 24, as, as God speaks to the people and says, here is the covenant I offer, and the people respond, we enter into this. Uh, uh, Israel and God enter into this new covenant at Mount Sinai. It's a covenant where God displays justice, 
righteousness, wrath, and law. But all the while, God kept saying, one day there's something else coming. The difference between this new covenant we are in and this old covenant here at Mount Sinai is so dramatic that the Bible will say there is law and then there is grace. You in Christ, you are under grace. But, but picturing the scene here, uh, Hebrews uses this moment to preach a beautiful metaphor. Exodus 19 shows a scary mountain. When you think the law when you think the old covenant, when you think Mount Sinai, the imagery that should immediately pop in your head is scary mountain. <laughs> scary, trembling mountain. But when you think new covenant in Christ, you should think heavenly Jerusalem, a mountain I am invited to ascend. And the blood of Christ so thoroughly cleanses us, uh, Jesus says, that, that we can boldly enter the throne room of God. God is giving an imagery to accompany this covenant. So we've seen multiple covenants made as we have walked through the scriptures now. And now we are seeing another covenant being made. But it is crucial that we understand this. This covenant that God is making at Mount Sinai was intended to be a temporary covenant. So covenant God made with Noah, that's eternal covenant God made at Mount Sinai, it was intended to be temporary. It had a starting point and it had a stopping point, a moment that it was fulfilled. From the mountain, God speaks the law of this covenant. Now what he, what he gives here, uh, the Bible will just call the law. Uh, law with a capital L. So when you're reading in the New Testament and you see uh, the word law, it'll either be in a lowercase or an uppercase L, okay? When it, whenever you see in the New Testament the a capital L law, that is speaking of this law right here. We sometimes call it the law of Moses or the old covenant or the law of Mount Sinai. And here is kind of how these next sections break down. So chapter 19 gives us the scenery, the imagery. Chapter 20, which we read some of that, you see the giving of the Ten Commandments there. You go into chapter 21, God continues to speak law. Chapter 22, a bunch more laws. Chapter 23, a lot of laws. You go into chapter 24, and actually it continues. It shifts a little bit, but it continues on there. So... You have the Ten Commandments given in chapter 20. Chapters 21 to 23 are a long list of additional laws. This will help you if you understand this. Those are mostly judicial laws. Laws about justice. Laws about how to live as the nation of God. When you come to chapter 24 through 31, now we're not covering that today. That'll be, Lord willing, three weeks whenever our team gets back here. Chapters 24 to 31 that covers another section of the law, but about the tabernacle, the altar, the sacrifices into the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, which talks about the various sacrifices, all of the weird things you read in your first Bible reading and you give a weird look going, what am I supposed to get out of this? All of that is coming in the days ahead. But today we're covering the, the, the 19 through 23 kind of section. So there's the scene. This is what's happening Here's the second part. Let's, let's talk about the purposes of the law. Purposes of the law. I'm going to give you three of them here in just a second. 
But, but we said in Genesis that God is the creator. He is the ultimate authority. I, I want you to track this. God as the possessor of all authority is exercising that authority by issuing a law, not suggestions, not asking. This is commanding. And the whole point of a commandment is it's not an askment. Okay? He's not saying, I'd really like it. Okay? No, do this. Do this. There are consequences for breaking this law. And to understand the law of Moses, let me give you three purposes of the law. Now, I need to give a footnoted reference here so that I'm not cheating. I got this from Pastor Colin on Thy Word Network. If you listen at nine in the morning, they gave a brilliant outline. I thought this is the best outline of the purposes of the law I've ever heard. So I'm giving them to you here. So here is the breakdown. The law of Moses was meant by God to be a map, a mirror, and a mentor. A map a mirror, and a mentor. I would highly encourage you to write that down. That is going to help you understand the Bible. Map, mirror, mentor. We're going to talk through each of those. So first, the, the most basic point is the law of Moses was a map to show the people how to obey God. So here is the arrangement. The essence of the covenant that God is making with the people is, we'll pause for a second. The essence of the marriage covenant the essence of that marriage covenant is me saying to my bride, I, I will be your husband and you will be my wife. Now, there's a 40 volume set of truths that come out of that sentence, okay? But that's the essence of it. The essence of the covenant that God is making with his people here is, is this. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, there's 80 volumes of truth that comes out of that. I will be your God. Here is how I promise to treat you. Here is how I promise to interact with you. You shall be my people. Here is your responsibility towards me. And in the old covenant, the responsibility of the people toward God is the law of Moses. It is this law that they are given. So um, if they ask the question, how do I obey God here is how. Now, we're going to have the discussion in a little bit about how do you and I as new covenant believers interact with the law of Moses? Because there are parts there we know don't apply to us. We eat bacon today. Like, what? I don't understand the differences. We're going to get into all of those things. But, but first, we have to understand how it was given to the original context, the original recipients. We've got to understand it, how it was given at Mount Sinai there. So it was a map to show the people how to obey God. Secondly, the law is a mirror. The law is a mirror reflecting the character of God. And as we gaze into it and see the character of God, it also reveals the evil of our hearts. The law is a mirror reflecting the holy nature of God. Every part of this law comes out of the very basic command, which is all over the Bible. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Abraham was told that, walk before me and be blameless. Abraham didn't have the scriptures. Abraham could have said, well, how am I supposed to know what to do? The law is God spelling out with clarity and some of it even being written in stone. Here is what it means to be holy. We're going to see the law of Moses add some other parts as well. And we're getting to all of that. But it comes out of this basic idea 
of this is a reflection of the character of God. Over and over again in the scriptures, the people of God, we are told because we are his people, we are to imitate him. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. Why are you supposed to be kind to your enemies? Because God is kind to his. Why are we supposed to be patient? Because God is patient. God's character means that we are to imitate and reflect his character. Holy, the word holy is a way of describing the entirety of the pure character of God. So we've said God's character, God's glory has numerous parts. He's got justice, he's got love, he's got mercy in there. To speak of the entirety of all of it as a package, the word holy is the word that the Bible uses for that. To be holy is to be separate from everything that is sin and lust and crookedness and, and darkness. God is light and in him there is no shadow of darkness at all. Holiness is separate from all that is unclean. He is holy. We are to be holy. And as you read the law, you see how a holy people ought to live. See, God is making his people separate, holy, distinct, different from the world. So, so here's an example. Man is a race of liars. Lying is intrinsic to the human depraved heart. Your, your toddlers lie to you and you don't have to teach them that. Lying is intrinsic to the fallen human condition. God speaks to his people and says, you are not to be a people who lie. It's different. Or, or take a look, jump over to chapter 23 for a moment. Exodus 23, look at verse 4. <coughs> Look at 23.4 here. God says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Let me ask you, is that how the world behaves? Not at all. The way of the world is you take your opportunities to get vengeance. You see harm come to your enemy and you chuckle a little bit to yourself. God says, that's not who I'm making you to be. You see your enemy in trouble in any way, you go and you show kindness. You show grace to this. God is calling his people to be marked by a God-like character, a holy character that sets them apart from the rest of the world. Let me subpoint there for just one second to kind of help with maybe understanding some other parts of the law. Um, skeptics love to make the law a target of their attacks and skepticism. You'll sometimes hear a skeptic say something like, well, if I ever see my enemy's donkey roaming around. Okay, can we apply maybe an ounce of intelligence and see a further principle here? Like maybe a principle of conduct like kindness to your enemies. Thirdly, the law is a mentor. It is a mentor intended by God to lead us to Christ. As we look at the law, if we're honest, that's a really key phrase. If we're honest, it does something. It exposes, it shines a light on the evil of our hearts. You cannot keep the entirety of the law. In fact, you can't even make it out of the Ten Commandments 
In fact, Jesus shows you have broken every one. You have broken every one of the Ten Commandments. The law is meant to be a mentor that shows you that. It is a tutor that shows you a truth you must know in order to come to Christ. And that is the diagnosis of the problem. You need him. You need salvation. You need forgiveness of sins. Turn to the New Testament with you, if you will. Uh, jump, to, jump to Romans chapter 3. We'll roll through just a quick little section here. <coughs> Romans 3, find verse 19. By the way, Romans 3, verses uh, 9 through 18 there, um, if you are ever sharing the gospel and you ask someone uh, why you think you may have eternal life, if they say, because I'm a good person, Romans 3, 9 through 18 is a really great place to bring them, just in very clear terms, spelling out that we are all sinners, okay? Um, look, like, look at verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. Bam, okay, we're done. We solved it, showed it there. But jump down to verse 19, and look what it says there, after giving a number of quotes from the Old Testament, being affirmed in the New Testament here. Look at verse 19 and see what it says. Now we know that whatever the law, see the capital L there? Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Can you be saved by the law? If you had been able to keep it perfectly, yeah, no problem. You did not do that. You cannot do that. Justification, being right with God, doesn't come through the law. The law gives you the knowledge of your sin. Jump to chapter 5 of Romans there for a moment. Look at verse 20, 5, 20. The law came in so that Stop there for a second. A question that Jews had all the time when the gospel was being preached. Now, these are things they should have known, but misunderstanding came over the course of years. And, and the uh, New Testament preachers, the apostles would preach and say, you cannot be saved by your deeds. The law can't save you. You need faith in Christ. People would then ask, well, then why did God give the law? Over and over, the New Testament answers that question. Here's why the law came in. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How does, sin, how does transgression increase under the law? Two ways. It increases, number one, in your own conscience. People can argue all the time over what is right and wrong. God says a law is written on the hearts of humanity. Law of God is written there in your conscience. But we like to be dishonest about it sometimes. We like to argue that, well, this is okay. I'm sure it's okay. The law spelled out, no, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Don't care if you argue with it. It is written in stone. But the transgression also, also increased in this. Not only did God give that moral law, which all man is accountable to, but to the Israelites, God gave additional laws. Parts of the law that we're going to get to in Leviticus, like you are not to wear garments that have more than one kind of fabric made of them and hundreds of other things just like that. God gave additional laws and part of his purpose was to show you cannot keep all of these things. 
Every one of us should read the Bible start to finish. You should read Leviticus. And even though in Leviticus you may get bogged down and be like, man, this is just a, a lot of laws. You're finally seeing some of the point. I can't keep all of these things. No human, no mere human can do all of these things. Well, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to skip the next one. But in Galatians chapter 3, if you want to jot that down, just read the whole chapter this afternoon. Galatians 3, one of the things we are told is, a question is asked, why did God give the law? If it's not so we can be saved, he gave the law as a tutor to lead us to Christ. God gave the law written down for the purpose of helping us to see that we are unrighteous. And in seeing that, you would feel your desperate need for a savior and look to God for mercy. Listen, friends, the law is all about what is just. It's all about what is right. It's all about justice and righteousness and not about overwhelming grace. The law was meant to be another neon sign pointing us forward to Christ. The law exposes our sin. Jesus used it often in his evangelism. Someone would ask Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? What would Jesus say? Well, what does the law say? And then they would spell out some commandments. They'd spell out some commandments that they claimed that they had kept. Like the rich young ruler would say, all of these I have kept. And then by the time the conversation's over, Jesus would show them, no, you have not kept the law. And so I ask you in this room right now, if you died today, do you think that you would have eternal life? Do you think that you would go to heaven? If you say yes, then the follow-up question I want to ask you is, well, why do you think that? If you were to say, well, you know, pretty well everybody goes, I would respond, stop getting your theology from country songs. But follow it up, but God says that is not true. If you say, then, well, you know, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. Here's how the Bible responds. You are pretty wrong. See, God is not just pretty holy, pretty righteous, mostly just. He is holy, holy, holy. He created you and I to be holy. He created you and I to be excellent on a scale that we are miles from and the kingdom he has prepared will not have in its entire history, will not have one sin that is allowed in that kingdom. You and I are not able to be righteous like that. In, in fact, if you read the law of God, you see that you and I break hundreds of God's commands. Jesus says that you have loved other things more than God. So you've broken the first commandment. Have you ever had an object or a possession or a person that you idolized? Well, you've broken the second. Have you ever inappropriately used God's name or even just spoken of God in an inappropriate way? Then you have broken the third. Have you ever disregarded worship? For other things and you have broken the fourth did you ever dishonor your mother or your father talk back to them in any way or not clean your room when they told you to do it then you have broken the fifth jesus said that if you have ever hated anyone unrighteously in your heart then you have had murder in your heart the same with adultery concerning lust have you ever stolen anything anything even time that you owe your boss 
then you are a thief. Have you ever lied at all? Then you are a liar. Have you ever coveted anything, coveted another possession, coveted another person, been jealous of anyone? Yes, you have. Then you have broken the 10. So let me, let me get this straight. You are going to stand before God, an idolater, a blasphemer of his name, a disregarder of worship, a disrespectful, murdering, adultering, lying thief who is not satisfied with life, and you think you're good enough for the perfect kingdom of God to come. This is our problem. This is our problem. And one of the problems of, of culture is always wanting to compare ourselves with ourselves. Always wanting to say, I'm a good person because when I look around at everybody else, I'm pretty good. They're not your standard. The standard is the, is the excellent place that God created you to be and to live. And where do we learn what that is? It is in the law that God has given. Our, our problem is that we have broken the law of God over and over again. The book of James says, even if you've broken it in one place, it, it's, it's not like a scale it's like a window. You break a piece of the window, the window is broken. The glass is broken. To even break the law in one place, the Bible says, is to break the law and be a law breaker. We are all breakers of the law of God. His law that he gave was a map, a mirror, and a mentor. Well, here's part number three. It's the parts of the law. Let's, let's talk about the different parts that God has given here. And by the way, if you're feeling depressed, good news is coming. We're getting there. <laughs> but it is some of the point that there is to be a sense of understanding. Listen, God is not trying to put us down in an untruthful way. God is showing us who we really are. And who we really are is a sinful people. Well, parts of the law. We often speak of three parts of the law. Not everybody sees it this way. Um, but I, I do believe this, the scholars that I appreciate in history, three parts of the law. And this helps us to understand it. We're going to talk about each of these. But if you want to jot them down, the three parts of the law are the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. The moral law, we'll start there. The moral law is that law that all mankind is accountable to. See, we're going to see that certain parts of the law, Abraham, who came before the law, if you remember the chronology, he didn't have to obey. Those, those laws didn't exist yet. And then God established the covenant at Sinai. The covenant at Sinai had a day of completion and then there are parts of this law that we are, have no obligation to any longer to keep because it was temporary. But the moral law is that part of the law of Moses that just simply recorded the law of God in eternity. Like any covenant you'll ever have with God, it's never going to be okay to lie. Like God's never going to make a covenant where he says, well, in this one, lying is okay. Let's see how that goes. It's never going to happen. The wearing of two different kinds of fabric, that's not an eternal principle of righteousness. But to be a truth-telling people, that is a part of a holy character. That is an eternal principle. So the moral law is that part of the law that was in existence when Abraham was alive. It just wasn't written down. And in the law of Moses, God wrote it down. Now, we may say, well, how does a person who doesn't have the scriptures, like the guy on the island, 
how does he know what the moral law is, the law of God that he is under? The Bible answers the same way that Abraham knew it. The scriptures were not written yet, but the Bible says it is written on our hearts. Our conscience bears witness to this law. Now, the moral law is largely contained, not entirely, but I'm saying largely, largely contained in the Ten Commandments. So, what's so special about the Ten Commandments? I mean, we, we see people fight and scream so that they'll get posted at courthouses and in schools. Why all the fuss? In, in the history of the church, the 2,000 years of Christian history, in most of that history, Christians have memorized the Ten Commandments. It's kind of an odd thing today that people don't. Most of that time, Christians memorized them. So why? It is because, friends, the Ten Commandments are special because it is the greatest summarization of morality in existence. You could walk through the Ten Commandments as the basic platform to teach every part of obedience to God. I'm just telling you, if you do an in-depth study of the Ten Commandments, you will be amazed at how far-reaching they are. They're, they're not just ten highly specific laws. No, no, no. They, they extend into what it means to live unto God. For instance, the New Testament shows us that the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor at yourself, which are not in the ten, by the way, they do come out of the ten, however, because there's a set that regards how we um, interact with God, our obligations towards God, and then there's a section of them that has to do horizontally with our relationships. The fact that the part about our obligations towards God is listed first shows a priority of the things of God over the things of man. <coughs> Jesus taught that the command uh, not to commit murder is more than just the outward act. It deals with the heart, and so does adultery. The command to honor your father and your mother teaches us about how we regard people, even in our thoughts. The tenth commandment, not to covet. Think on that for just a second. Think of the implications. First of all, we are to fight lust. Lust is to long for something you do not have. It, the Bible shows us that lust is the root of every sin you will ever commit. Secondly, if we're not to covet, we're not to lust, then what are we to do? We're to be content. What is contentment? Contentment is to be satisfied. It is to be happy with what God has given us. It is to live in a, a joyful place. And, and if you think about it, coveting and, and joy and lust and satisfaction with God are all something that are experienced in the heart. <coughs> Excuse me. So obedience to God is something that encompasses, listen to me, not only outward actions. God is so much the Lord of our life that he is Lord even over our thoughts, even over our emotions, our feelings. He is so much the Lord that even the inner man is to be lived unto obedience to God. Imagine what else you would see in an in-depth study of the Ten Commandments. The point is, for thousands of years, the people of God have seen that these ten words, as they're originally called, are a glorious summarization of true obedience to God. So, do I think that the Ten Commandments should be posted at courthouses and in schools? A thousand times, yes! Um, 
We could have a conversation about what happens when children are exposed, exposed to morality at a young age. That's a different day. But if you just think about this and ask the question, why are secularists so stinking afraid at having to look at a plaque that says the Ten Commandments? They don't like what they see when they look in that mirror. And parents, one of the greatest studies that you just absolutely must do with your children before they leave their home, your, your home, is a study through the Ten Commandments. I mean, we've seen God's word say, by the time your kids leave your home, you are to have taught through every doctrine of the Bible. Okay, don't, don't say, well, that's the church's job. No, 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 God says it's your job. Church's job is to equip you. You go home, teach your children. But I would say, study through the Ten Commandments, one of the top two studies that have just got to happen in the home. So God clarified and spelled out the moral law. Secondly, the judicial law, very quickly. Throughout the Bible, God makes a point that justice is a spiritual issue. Let's not detach here. Justice is a moral issue. Don't, don't think that there's like obedience to God and then all these other things. No, God speaks of justice as a moral issue. But think about justice. You can go one of two ways with justice. You can either be too soft or too severe. So let's take an example. Someone breaks into your car at night and steals money out of your car. Okay, that's wrong. How wrong is it? What kind of punishment should the thief get? Well, under Islamic Sharia law, the thief would have his hand cut off. I think that's too harsh. Bible says that's too harsh. I believe the Bible. So what should the just punishment be? Well, in Exodus 22, God walks through a series of scenarios and talks through some of those things. First of all, he begins to talk and say that if someone breaks into your home, you have the right to defend yourself and your property. And you are just and right before God if you strike the person so that they die. Has our culture had some trouble in clarifying things like that? Yes, they have. But God also then mentions that if the sun rises after this event and you go hunt the person down and strike them, that is not okay. That would be murder. And so God is clarifying things. Has our culture had difficulty clarifying things like that? Yes, they have. When the thief was caught, the punishment was they were to repay four times what was stolen. I want you to think about that. Would that be a wise check on crime. Consider the situation we have here. I know people who have been stolen from here and they never even received back what was stolen, let alone any kind of restitution. The criminal then de depends on the day and what's going on. Sometimes it's a little slap on the wrist. Sometimes they go to prison. And in prison, they live in a society of depravity where their depravity is only multiplied by the time they get out, oftentimes their depravity is worse than when they went in. Oftentimes then go on to live a life of perpetual depravity and crime going on there. And the victim is never has any sort of justice or restitution. God established a very different scenario. God established a scenario where the thief was to repay back. And then if he couldn't, he would enter into servitude to work off of his debt. Now, that's a part of the law that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, that God does regulate some servitude. But I want you to think about it in this situation. This is one of the main ways that you would become a servant at this time. You commit a crime, 
And in order to pay off the crime, there would be work. Work, which is part of God's very purpose for humanity. Work, which has a spiritual kind of therapeutic way of helping. Work in order to contribute to society rather than be a drain of hundreds of millions of dollars into feeding this. I'm just failing to see the downside of this. My, my point in making this and saying this is, as you walk through the law, I am again and again going, that's genius. That is, that is genius. The more time I see, in, the more, more time I spend in scripture, the more brilliant the law becomes to me. So when I was a new Christian, I'll be very honest with you, reading the law made me uncomfortable because there are parts of it that are a pretty big challenge to our modern culture and the ways that we think things are right. And, and you know, let's not dodge the issue. I want to be real with you. There are still some parts of the law that make me a little bit uncomfortable. But here's what I want to tell you. Trust God. Trust that God is righteous even before you see all the answers. If there is something that bothers us, I can assure you the problem is not with God. The problem is with the way we see things. And the older I grow, the more time I spend in the scriptures, the more I keep seeing. And let me also say this, things like going to Belize and impoverished nations just keep showing the beauty of the law. And there will be situations, and I'll go, that, that is why God did it that way. That's genius. I never thought of it before. Over and over again, I keep seeing parts of the law that are difficult to us modern minds. Give it time. We see the righteousness of God in it. Now, here's the last section of the law. We're going to leave this one very quickly because we're going to expound upon it more when we come back to the Leviticus section. And that is the ceremonial law. So very briefly, the ceremonial law was that part of the law that had to do with worshiping God under that covenant. So aspects like the sacrifices, the purification rituals, the feast that God instituted, the clean and unclean animals, every single one of those laws preaches a sermon as an illustration. And God intended them to be temporary laws, but that preach things about the character of God and what he expects of us. But these laws were temporary. They had a starting point and they had a stopping point. The stopping point, the moment that the law of Moses was fulfilled was the moment that Jesus gave his life on the cross. At the moment of his death, if you remember the gospels tell us that the veil in the temple between the holy place and that most holy place was ripped from top to bottom and we're told that signified several things. It signifies that the way to God is no longer through that veil. There is a new way that we come to God and that way is through Jesus Christ. But it also signified that the time of the law of Moses was brought to completion. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus brought new wine in new wineskins. That's an illustration he uses. But he didn't just trash the old law. See, the old covenant, the law, it's like a mortgage. You can't just take your mortgage and trash it and stop your obligations to it, okay? I mean, I guess you can, but then the, there's consequences. Bank comes and takes your house away, okay? 
the law of Moses, that covenant couldn't just be trashed. Jesus kept it. And Jesus fulfilled it. Friends, Jesus did what no one else could do. Jesus was born under the law of God. Not just the law of God that existed all over, but even specifically the law of Moses. And Jesus never lusted in his heart. Never unrighteously hated. Jesus never dishonored his father or his mother. And not only did Jesus keep those parts, Jesus kept even the ceremonial law down to every jot and every tittle. And then he went to the cross. And Galatians tells us that on the cross, there was a part of the judicial law that said this. Anyone who hangs from a tree bears a curse from God. Hanging from a tree was reserved for a, 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 a terrible kind of justice. Jesus, though he did not deserve it, went to the tree, hung from the tree in our place. Jesus, the one who kept the law. And the Bible says that there's a substitution, a double substitution. That on the cross, my sins, my breaking of the law of God, was cast on the Jesus' shoulders. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was treated as if he had broken the law of God. And by faith, you and I, Christian, get treated as if we had obeyed like Christ obeyed. His obedience gets counted as ours. My sin on him and his righteousness on me. Friends, you and I have been under the law of God and we have broken that law and you and I deserve the wrath of the God of Mount Sinai. But the terror and the fury of that scene was cast onto Jesus. Jesus bore that wrath and that terror on himself. And now we're in grace. We're in a new covenant. And friends, in this new covenant, there is a law. We call it the new law, the law of Christ, the law of liberty. And what does it contain? Well, it is the moral law, but there are some extras in this new covenant as well, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. I would say those are ceremonial parts of this covenant that we are in. There is a law of Christ, but the arrangement is different. We do not obey the law of God to be saved. We obey because we are saved. We obey because he died for me and I love him. We obey because I want to please my father. We obey because I want to hear that well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to make him proud. I want him to look on me and smile. I want the rewards that he's offered. And I want to obey him because many times in the New Testament it is said, you need to know adulterers and idolaters and coveters will not see the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they show they are not a changed people. Christian, you need to obey the law of Christ to show that you are a changed people. You are no longer under law, but under grace. But you who can hear me and you're not born again, there's, there's never been this time that you came to Christ knowing you need to be saved from the wrath of God, saved from the hell that you deserve, knowing that it is only in Christ that you will have eternal life. 
You are not under grace. You are still under law. No, not the law of Moses. But you're still under the covenant of works. You're still under a situation that says, obey and live, disobey and die. And you will receive from God only what is just. But therein is the problem. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things which are written in the law. That's Galatians 3. You who are not in Christ, you are under a curse. Not because God is mean. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. The problem is our ability to keep it. You are under a curse of wrath. And so listen to me, friend. Mount Sinai is not where you will find grace. But Jesus climbed the hill and there you will find mercy. Flee to Christ. Enter the new covenant and you will be under grace. A covenant where there is forgiveness. So if you know in your heart that you have never truly come and been made right with God, you know you're not at peace with God like this that we're talking about. The good news that God offers you is that there is a free gift, not wages to earn, a free gift. He wants to give you and you can have it right now. Turn your heart to trust in Christ. Believe on him. Ask God to save you. And the Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Invitation I want to give you is this. I'm going to close in prayer here in just a second. When I'm done, I'll be at the back talking to things. If you want to turn to Christ and you want somebody to talk to and pray to, just mention it to me and let me show you more about how you can know for certain that you're right with God and have eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord our God, Week after week after week, we say this and we pray, how can we ever say thank you for what you have accomplished in Christ? Lord, we love you. Bless your name. We will worship you forever for what you have done. God, I pray for your children that we will glory in the salvation and the grace that we have and we will live as a grateful people. And Father, any in the room whose hearts are not right with you, who do not have eternal life. Lord, I pray that, that today the conviction, the guilt, the hounding thought of eternity would be so much for them, oh God, that they do turn to you. Stop resisting you, Lord, and that they bow to you. Please, Lord, save souls. We ask these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, God gives the law. We hope you tune in again next week as we continue to work through God's Word. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.